Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 65. The issue, the voice of conscience. Stay tuned. I thought it was time that we took stock of where we stood and, and in a more general way. And I couldn't think of a better way to start than with an Irish poet. William Butler Yeats was a grand poet, playwright, gifted prose writer who wrote with a point of view, especially about the Irish condition and thus about the troubles that we all have. True, he devoted a great deal of his writing and study to mythic Celtic inspirations, but he knew his way around a political argument and served two terms as a senator of the Irish Free State. He concerned himself with those forces, subtle and direct, that can compromise a man's true vision. He was concerned in his life with literature, that is, written works, considered to be of superior or lasting artistic merit. That was his objective, that was his goal. But it's not limited to poetry. I thought we should consider some pertinent literature that applies to the American condition, starting, of course, with what Yeats had to say about it. We well know of the pounds of paper and gigabytes of information that pass through or near our consciousness, and there is so little of that could, that could be characterized as superior or lasting. But Yeats had a high regard for the purpose of literature, and this is what he said. I believe that literature is the principal voice of the conscience, and that it is its duty age after age, to affirm its morality against the special moralities of clergymen and churches, and of kings and parliaments and peoples. I have no doubt a wise ecclesiastic, if his courage equaled his wisdom, would be a better censor than a mob, but I think it better to fight the mob alone than to seek for a support one could only get by what would seem to me a compromise of principle. We're surrounded on every side by special moralities, compromising higher principles and ideas that need to be heard and acted upon. And now particularly, we also have special amoralities, rising mobs in defiance of law and constitution and good behavior, who live instead on impulses of violence and hate, who celebrate winning and at any cost no matter the discrimination, no matter the boorish behavior, no matter how they would compromise this nation, no matter the autocratic impulses they follow. Now, let's look at these special amoralities. Prize-winning historian Arthur Schlesinger anticipated their rise when he wrote in his book, The Disuniting of America, of the desperate disquiet among white separatists at the, quote, rising flow of non-European immigrants creating a minority majority that will make Eurocentrism obsolete by the 21st century. That explains a lot about the mob that we're talking about, the amoralities. But let's talk about the special moralities. Too many fail to resist those churches who dominate and instruct their too pliant flock of the ever-obedient faithful to hate and abuse those who they find different by color or immigration or sexual preference or orientation or religion and so much more. 
another special morality, encompasses the financial temples on Wall Street and across the nation that measure success by increments of profits. The larger, the better. No matter the cost of business to individual life or dignity of the working man or woman or the vendor or customer for that matter. Are some better than others? I had a client who said, big business is good, but small is better, meaning smaller business is closer to the people, more honest, sort of like local government sometimes, not always. We cannot ignore the fact how big business hoards its wealth, fails to take its fair share of the heft necessary to make a government, to make a community, to make a nation work. They have wealth exceeding the capacity for any human to need so much wealth. So many cars, houses, yachts, motorcycles, airplanes, helicopters, diamond rings, gold watches, whatever you can imagine. A fair ethical question is whether the productivity of their workers should result in some share of the increased profits generated by the workers' productivity. That shouldn't some part of that be distributed to the workers because they made possible the incremental profits of who was at the top of this heap. This hasn't always been true that those who produced so well were left out of the exchange, but it is true in the last 10 years or so. Now, some filthy rich overseers having twinges of conscience decide to give a portion of their fortune away. Some try to give all of it away by the time of their death. Isn't that an admission uh, even if you think it's somehow good that whatever they were selling, product or service, they were overcharging. Why, why else would they have such an excess? Now, another special morality, and this is the one that we talk about perhaps the most, lives among our elected representatives who all too often represent only themselves, pretending to be trustworthy while they take for themselves to feather their nest. They're not working to ease the suffering of their constituents. They're not working to represent them and to give them what they promised they would in the last election. They make such decisions only as they must at the last possible moment with foggy language to compromise what they really believe so they don't compromise their re-election chances. Republicans are the worst, no question about it. But no one is without blame. These are times demanding courage and action, and the Congress is moving too slowly as the midterm elections approach faster than we all realize. And Luke, it said that Jesus cursed lawyers who placed a burden on others without lifting a finger to lighten the load. If all the chest-beating faux political Christians truly believed that, they would act to help our citizens. But for them, religion is just a way to have access to power and have people do what they want. Now, another special morality are the courts. We think of the courts, of course, as impartial arbiters of situations and conflict. We have many judges who take to heart their obligation to follow the Constitution and the law. But... For too many years, especially during the last administration, corrupt congressional legislatures, legislators, led by then-majority leader McConnell, sought to appoint judges, however dimly qualified, to overrule long-standing legal precedent based instead on the ideological views of the Federalist Society. That has cost us some good faith and public trust in the high court, when both are necessary to assure respect for the law and the court's decision. Associate Justice Stephen Breyer, one of my favorite justices on the current court, 
has written in his book, Making Our Democracy Work, how critical it is that the trust of the nation's citizen exists in the work of its highest court, quote, even when the court's decisions are highly unpopular. Now, some think a Supreme Court appointed with the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate and not elected is a violation of majority rule somehow. But Justice Breyer explains a couple of things, that it is a majoritarian democracy with boundaries set by our constitutional structure and by rights that the Constitution ensures to individuals and minorities against the majority's desire. Well, let, me, let me explain this again. The rights we have as an individual are something we can assert against the majority. That's one of the most important purposes of the court, that one man or woman entity can say what you're doing is wrong, and it's not a majority decision. It's a decision based on rights and liberties. Another factor that Justice Breyer notes is that, quote, most people understand that democratic governments, like all governments, need stability. And stability is inconsistent with a legal system whose content varies daily and directly with changes in popular opinion. Breyer's analysis, Breyer's analysis underscores why appointing judges to defeat the rights of individuals founded by the court is a direct assault on the function of the court to ensure a right against a government wrong done to an individual. Breyer also questions the stability of a court that can be so easily changed by political appointments to achieve a result rather than to seek impartial deliberation of what the law says and how it applies in the case before the court. Now, Judge Learned Hand, a federal judge from New York, both in the trial court and leading the Second Circuit Appellate Court, and I clerked in the Second Circuit, and he was long gone when I was there, but he was well remembered for having been there. He made an historic speech in Central Park at a time during World War II, when an hysterical fear of subversion gripped the nation. He spoke on the spirit of liberty in 1944. If I remember rightly, it was one of the reading assignments the summer before I attended Columbia Law School. What he said in part in that speech is as follows. Liberty lies in the hearts of men and women. When it dies there, no constitution, no law, no court can ever do much to help it. While it lies there, it needs no constitution, no law, no court, to save it. And what is this liberty which must lie in the hearts of men and women? It is not the ruthless, the unbridled will. It is not freedom to do as one likes. That is the denial of liberty and leads straight to its overthrow. A society in which men recognize no check upon their freedom soon becomes a society where freedom is the possession of only a savage few as we have learned to our sorrow. Those words speak to our times. Liberty lies in the hearts of many Americans today, but is lost to many who are ruthless, who want to do as they like, who would overthrow liberty for power and control, for a monarchy, because they want no one to check whatever impulse they would follow, up to and including seizing and overthrowing our government. To sum it up, we have persons of flawed character, in our churches, on Wall Street, in our Congress, and on the courts, 
who don't have liberty in their hearts, who don't understand the wisdom of Justice Breyer or Judge Hand, who seek to make America work as was intended. In essence, they are saying, where there is no law, there's only chaos, the workbench of fascists and autocrats, and there democracy is at risk. Is our nation at risk? Yes, of course, in a way that's always true. Are there good signs? Yes, every day we see good signs from the administration of President Joe Biden. But we need more. We need courage, commitment, and we need action. The courage of which I speak is not just to give voice to what is right and necessary. It is the courage to act, to demand an accounting for those rabble-rousing, seditious autocrats who would compromise this still young experiment in democracy. We must sanction and punish those who would destroy our democratic government and do it now, as soon as possible. Albert Einstein wrote a letter to the Society for Social Responsibility. He was concerned with, quote, the problem of how man should act if his government prescribes actions or society expects an attitude which his own conscience considers wrong. Einstein said it's easy to say that the individual cannot be held responsible for acts carried out under irresistible compulsion because the individual is fully dependent upon the society in which he is living and therefore must accept its rules. Now think about that for a moment. Do you believe that? If a society rules it, one must comply? You don't believe that. Einstein said, the very formulation of this idea makes it obvious to what extent such a concept contradicts our sense of justice. And what is justice? Justice in its simplest definition is fairness. We feel, we know inside our heart, accompanying our notions of liberty that what is just is what is fair. External compulsion can, to a certain extent, Einstein said, reduce, but never cancel the responsibility of the individual. In the Nuremberg trials, this idea was considered to be self-evident. But what can an individual do? This is not an alien concept to us these days. We have some idea from our recent electoral experience, hard as it was. The force to destroy democracy still remains. But the presidential election was a save and a big one. It stopped what might have been in its tracks. But it didn't kill it. It's still with us. We see it every day and the rogues that roam our various institutions. And with impunity because there is no sanction. There is no punishment. There is no calling out. And we must do that. We must otherwise do what we've done before in the recent election to continue to restore American democracy and justice and equity. Einstein said, institutions are in a moral sense impotent unless they are supported by the sense of responsibility of living individuals. That's we the people. That's what we have to do. That's what we did before. We gave backbone to elected representatives and to other leaders by being and saying what really matters. We have to keep doing that because that is how change comes. That is how we get rid of those who are not Democrats, those who would destroy our democracy, those autocrats, those rude, boorish people so corrupt that they think we can't see through their lies. 
Individuals give support to those in our institutions by demanding an accounting for crimes committed against democracy and against individual members of Congress. Also by insisting on a respect for individual rights and liberties. They are persons who believe the Constitution is right when it says we must promote the general welfare. It is persons who believe we must choose new jurists for the ages to come. And finally, we must create the mechanisms in government to get the job done. And I mean now and to stop talking about it, throw out the filibuster rule, eliminate the 60 vote rule, make it a majority rule. There's one other person uh, that I know, uh, I know of him because uh, the senior partner at a Midtown law firm whom I worked with was a law clerk to Justice Robert Jackson. And Justice Robert Jackson tried the Nuremberg cases. And he made it clear how this all worked. Quote, we set up government by consent of the governed. And the Bill of Rights denies those in power any legal opportunity to coerce that consent. Authority here is to be controlled by public opinion, not public opinion by authority. There are those in government, in the Congress, and the several states who would coerce the consent of the government by suppressing the vote that opposes their governance. That cannot stand. Justice Jackson spelled it out, but we know what it is because liberty lives in our hearts and souls. Our opinion in the here and now, in the courts, in the Congress, and in the ballot, bus must be, ballot box must be stated firmly and clearly. You officials work for us. And if you don't believe that, if you want to overthrow our democracy, we're kicking you to the curb and electing those who are Democrats, small d, who believe this nation is a democracy. And it's based on the principle of one from many. Thank you for listening. Uh, those are my remarks this week. I'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.